All right. Awesome. Who wants to go swimming? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're wondering what that is referenced to, that does link with announcements last week, so it's not completely random, but uh, so stay tuned for announcements next week. You don't really know what you're going to get. All right. Who is in a good mood tonight? Who's ready? Yeah. I just, who wants Jesus to speak to him right now? Me too. Me too. So we're on week two. Uh, we are family. Anybody practice it? Anybody want to sing it? We are family. Maybe next week I'll just stop and then you guys are supposed to like start echoing it. So uh, we're just going in components. What does it mean? We talk about being family. We talk about that as a pillar of a church. We want to be a healthy family. Uh, what is a healthy family? Uh, and we're kind of journeying into that. Last week was on, uh, anybody remember? Brave communication. All right, good. I get real self-conscious there, you know, if nobody remembers, it probably wasn't very good. So, no, but uh, it was on brave communication last week. Um, this week, going to talk, uh, I'll just start. I'm not even going to tell you what I'm going to talk about. Just surprise you, okay? So I'm going to pray, then we'll go. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be good soil tonight. And I pray that you do speak, God, in Isaiah 50, anointed word that sustains the weary, God, that fills us up with hope, that fills us up with uh, your thoughts, God, so that we can think like you, so that we can be transformed to look like you. So I pray, God, that your love will be in the room and that it will speak to us and change our hearts in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So one of the components of a healthy family is health. Uh, health and wholeness. Jeremiah talks about this a lot in his prophetic literature. It talks about Israel that they're going to be a people of health and wholeness when the Lord restores them. And I believe to be a healthy community, there has to be this healing nature to it. Um, that's part of the word health, right? Health. Health. We're going to be healthy. We're going to be really healthy around here. In the garden, God put, he had a family. He had a very healthy family. It was him, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Adam. They were super healthy. Then Eve came. They were still super healthy, and it was perfect, and it was paradise. And then we, we know I'm not going to go into it real in depth tonight, but there was sin. The sin issue came in, and it immediately began making division. Adam and Eve, first thing they did is they started hiding from God. Not a good idea. He knows everything. So they're hiding, then they leave, they're banished from the garden, and then pretty soon, like next generation, we have the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills his brother because he's jealous, then pretty soon there's this separation and dissension, and then life just kind of gets messier and messier and messier, and all of a sudden, one family, there starts to be all these different peoples, and brothers and sisters actually identify as strangers, Right? This is, this is not how it was never meant to be. There was never supposed to be such thing as strangers. There's supposed to be one family, God's family. That's why he created. He has this, uh, you know, he's the Trinity. He's a triune God with relationship within himself. Out of the joy of intimacy and love, he created us so that he could extend and grow what he has within himself. Right? So we are literally situated in the middle of the Godhead, in the middle of a perfect, healthy, beautiful family that he loves passionately. But sin comes. It doesn't just separate us from God. It separates us from one another. And very soon, the people that were meant to be one family don't know each other as family. They are strangers. This was never meant to be the case. You following me? God was not content with this destruction. He wasn't content with there being division. He wants a family. 
right? And he forever proved that to us by coming um, and dying on the cross. Um, and the cross uh, really is the instrument that brings redemption back to these, this estranged world to recreate a healthy family. Ephesians 2 says this, uh, 2.14. It says, for he, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles, and in the temple structure, there was a dividing wall where Gentiles could not cross. So he's basically trying to, he's, he's uh, highlighting like the most extreme form of racism that he knew in his day, which is the division between Jew and Gentile. And he's saying he came, he's our peace, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by destroying it in his flesh. The enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Right? So it's through the cross he destroyed the division. The cross destroyed all, it eradicated it. It took down the barriers, took down the wall between Jew and Gentile, and it made everybody one again. Right? Which is what we want. Everybody prays the John 17 prayer, Lord, make us one. Right? We think like we want to be unity. How many people have prayed for church unity before? It's a good thing to pray for. How many people, you know, like we want, we want us to be one. Even secular culture has this idea that we want to be one. Uh, we need it desperately as a nation right now. It's campaign slogans. We need, you know, we need to be one. We need to make America great again. We need to unite. Um, there's the synergy, right? We're bigger together than we are apart. Um, but what we don't realize in the church is that when we're praying for one, when we're saying, Lord, make us one, we're praying the only way that that happens is through the cross. The cross is the instrument of union. We sometimes think like, oh, we just need to try harder and get along a little bit better and be nicer to one another. That's not, that's not it. We can't do that. There is real division out there, right? There is real racism out there. There is real... Uh, you know, manipulation and barriers, you know, between language. I mean, one of the, the effects of sin, right, is the, is the mis, missing, mixing of languages. How many people have had a language mix up with people? A miscommunication recently? I've had like seven probably this week. Probably learn about a few more, right? Like, language is hard. Communication is difficult. There is real division out there. We can't just try harder to make it up. We've been given the gift of the cross. The cross. When we pray, Lord, make us one, we are praying for the cross because the cross is what destroys division. Amen? So what's the cross? This is an interesting one because a lot of us, we have become convinced, especially in American culture, Christendom, where, you know, at least probably not anymore. We're kind of post-Christendom. We're pushing that brink, but it was real popular to say you're Christian. Like most people would say, I'm Christian 30 years ago, even if they really weren't Christian. You follow me? Right? It's just kind of like that's a popular thing to do. We're Christian. We're a Christian nation. I'm American. I'm Christian. Is there a difference? Right? Not anymore. It's kind of changing, but because of Christendom, because of living in cultures where it's popular to be Christian, right, we've almost become convinced that the cross is a symbol of victory because it's up on mountaintops, on Table Rock. It's on top of really pretty high cathedrals. You know, all the athletes, they got those cool gold chains with the nice cross, right? Anybody? Come on. You're with me, right? Right? We're like, the cross is cool, man. It's victory. Victory in Jesus. Take me to the cross. Ooh, that doesn't really make sense, right? Cross isn't anything to do with victory. We've, we've kind of become persuaded that it is because we so associate it with an empty grave. 
because we know the end of the story, right? We know there's resurrection. So we've like almost blurred the grave and the cross together, and it's like, Jesus demand, right? The cross. Cross is not a symbol of victory. It was a Roman tool of torture and execution, and it always was, and it always will be. It is not a place of victory. That's bad thinking about the cross. There is victory. I'm not trying to steal that away. There's an empty tomb. I've been there in Israel. Nobody's there. Praise the Lord. Just a nice, clean, smelling, nice place. Nobody's there. No, no dead people in the tomb because we know Jesus rose from the grave. But it's not the empty grave. Jesus, Paul doesn't say, by the power of the empty grave, division was destroyed. He says it was, it was through the cross. Division was destroyed and the two were made one. So what's the cross? What does the cross represent? we really got to understand and grapple. This is like the central theme of Christianity, right? This is like what we exalt. Why do we exalt it? Why is it on the top of every cathedral and mountainside? I'm going to answer that first in the negative. When I look at the cross, I don't see competition. And when I look at the cross, I don't see envy. And when I look at it and I reflect upon it, I don't see manipulation, there's no hierarchy, there's no pride, there's no lust for power, there's no backstabbing, there's no, there's no empire building, right, there's no selfishness, I don't see that. When I look at the cross, I don't see victory, I don't even see competition, like, right? All these things that culture kind of exalts. I don't see success. I don't see champion. I just see a cross, right? In Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, uh, you know, Song of Solomon is like this picture between Jesus and his church. That's how we perceive it now. You following me? It's like the lovers are speaking. Kind of weird, right? But there's this holiness to it. And Jesus is really in love with his bride. And in chapter 4, there's this whole part where he's like gushing about his bride. Like, this is what I see. This is what I see when I look at her. And then he's like saying how much he loves. And then there's like this section in verse 6 that kind of pulls away. And he says, but I'm going to go my way to the mountain of myrrh. What the heck does that mean? Myrrh. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was found from a tree. There's like, it's like this long name of a tree. It's scientific. You can look it up. But the way they would get it is that it would weep down trees in the aloe. And it was this fragrance. It was this fragrance that they would find it was all, looked like it was suffering. It was this fragrance of suffering love. And the cross, when I look upon the cross... I see a man who climbed the mountain of myrrh and hung on a tree and wept with his body and his passion and all that he was, a fragrance of suffering love. He climbed his way to the mountain of myrrh. And the cross always is and always will be the revelation of the love of God. It is suffering love incarnate. It is demonstrating to us that true love's not afraid to bleed. Right? It's not victory, but it is love. We know love never fails. We know there's resurrection, but the cross is suffering love. 
It's where God exposed himself and wept a fragrant offering for us. And it is that fragrant offering, it is that suffering love that destroys division and makes the most wretched racism that Paul could imagine one. It's not the empty tomb, it's suffering love. So we, if we're to be Christians like him, if we're going to wear a cross necklace well and embody this gospel message, we have to be people that embody suffering love. Amen? You guys look a little quiet right now. Are you sad? I know, it's heavy. So what is suffering love? This wasn't normally going to be one message, but I felt the Holy Spirit say, um, break it up. So I'm going to spend a few weeks. I don't know that I'm, Pastor Robin's preaching soon. So it'll probably be broken up. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on three components, three aspects of the makeup ingredients, I guess, that make up to me suffering love. First one is compassion. The second one we'll talk about is hospitality. And the third is going to be forgiveness and mercy. They're very linked. So tonight I'm going to speak on compassion. That was just the intro. You ready? Buckle up. I need a, I need a couple volunteers. Any brave souls? How about two men? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what you're going to have to do. <laughs> so, all right, I'm just going to pick you. All right, one, come up. Two, come up. All right, let's give them a hand. That's brave. All right. I, you guys, uh, you know how little kids, they're like, see who can hold their breath longest? You're going to do that for me right now, okay? And so then, and all of you, you're going to count, like one, two, three, Mississippi, four. Yeah, so actually, yeah, so you can count just to have fun. So you, can, you don't have to hold your nose, but we're in church. You can't lie, so. All right, ready? One, two, three, go. Okay, let's give them a hand. All right, hey, 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 hey. All right, here's our winner. Come here. Tell me, how do your lungs feel right now? They burn. They burn. Why do they burn? Because I had no oxygen. Because you had no oxygen. So right now, you guys can be seated, by the way. Give them a hand. But right now, they are both, they're both experiencing an uncontrollable desire for oxygen. Okay, they, they, they are burning for breath. Okay? Compassion is an uncontrollable desire to alleviate the suffering of another. There is a burn in the heart of God that is so intense he cannot control himself. He despises suffering. And he desires to bring healing to his people. It's that desire that compelled him to the cross. No one forced him. No one made him. He went there because he was compelled by compassion. 
there's two components of compassion, two dichotomies of it, that you have to have both or you will never experience the depth of that love. We pray these prayers, we sing these songs, you know, the, the Hosanna cry, the break my heart for what breaks yours. This is a cry for compassion. This is a cry to experience. Even if it's just for a moment, can you touch me with that type of desire? Because once someone's touched with the compassion of Christ, they're never the same person. It breaks you down, and you become a different individual, and you become compelled by love. And that's what we all want, right? You're not afraid of man anymore when you have an uncontrollable desire to alleviate suffering. You're not afraid to pray for someone when you have an uncontrollable desire, when you have love, when you have compassion, right? But there's two components. One is there is a disturbance, and two, there's hope. So a person of compassion has, is, is a greatly disturbed individual, but an exceedingly hopeful one as well. If you can turn your Bibles, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn them to John 11. I'm going to read about the story of Lazarus. We're going to see that Jesus was a very disturbed man in this life. There's a story here, but I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of piece through it so you can follow me, of a man named Lazarus who gets sick. Right, and Jesus is a few days away when he gets sick. So this is chapter 11, verse 1. It says, a certain man was sick, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha, the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, excuse me, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So a few verses down, the, Jesus is not, he's not really welcome at this place right now, at this point in his life. People are trying to kill him. So his disciples say, we can't go back there. Lazarus lives like just on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. It's like a hop, skip, and a jump. It's not as far as you think, I promise. Uh, he's just up the hill. And in Jerusalem, they're wanting to kill him. So they're like, no, we can't go there, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I got to go back. Lazarus is sleeping. They're like, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. We don't need to take this risk. This is real stupid, Lord. And Jesus says, no, I was just speaking in figurative speech. What I meant is he's actually dead. And then he basically tells them, but I'm glad for your sakes that we weren't there because now you're going to get to see me raise him from the dead. So Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. Are you following me? He knows Lazarus is dead. He knows he's about to raise the man from the dead. He's got perfect faith. God's spoken to him. He's probably seen it all, right? But that's not the end of the story. In verse 17, says Jesus, Jesus gets to the, the town of Bethany. It says, when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany's near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is communicating hope to Martha. 
But with Mary, something different happens. I'm going to skip down to verse 30. It says, Now Jesus had not come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Why was he greatly troubled? He, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He told his disciples actually two days prior, I'm about to go raise Lazarus from the dead. But then he gets there and he sees this one that he loves weeping. thought it was going to be like a perfect Holy Spirit was speaking over there. He sees this one that he loves weeping, and it disturbs him. He becomes greatly troubled, and he begins to weep. Why is he weeping? Because he has an uncontrollable desire to alleviate suffering. He doesn't like to see his people weeping, and he's moved. It doesn't matter that he knows what's going to happen. Right? He has the hope for what's going to happen, but he also is greatly disturbed. And he has a capacity within himself to be disturbed by the suffering of the people that he loves. You following me? Pain is precious to God. Psalm 56.8 says that he catches my tears in his bottle. These are like diamonds to him. These are valuable to him. And I believe that if we're to be a people of compassion, we have to begin to value what God values. And God values pain. God values tears. He does not let a one draw to the fall to the ground. He sees them and he's there and he he's he's with us in our suffering, right? He says, I'm Emmanuel. I'm with you always. He's with us on the top of the mountain, but Lord knows he's with us in the valley. Who can attest to being God being with you in the dark night of your soul when everyone else was gone? So I've been there too. But I had one faithful friend who was willing to be disturbed with me in my pain because pain is disturbance. Pain is never like, I don't wake up, it's like, oh, it's a Tuesday, it's 69 outside, seems pretty nice, I'm going to put my shorts on, and you know what? I could use a little pain about 2 o'clock to kind of mess everything up, right? Everybody ever prayed that? Everybody ever thought like that? No, pain is disturbance. Pain is unplanned for. Pain sucks. Amen? But we have a friend in Jesus who is not afraid. He, he's, he's not so full of his own agenda that your pain it doesn't matter to him. He sees it and he stops. He stops everything he's doing. And your disturbance becomes his disturbance. And he sits there with you in your pain. And he feels it. He doesn't just try to fix it. He actually feels it. He knew what he was about to do. He's about to raise Lazarus. He could have been like, hey, just hang on. Don't weep. Don't weep. Don't weep. I'm about to raise the man from the dead. That's not what he did. 
he, he, was, he wept. He wept because he knew this one he loved for four days had been weeping and in pain, and he saw her heart, and it hurt him. And he sat there, and he was disturbed. And we've got to be willing in our own lives to be disturbed too. But we will never be disturbed until we're willing to stop and see the pain of our brothers and our sisters. Exodus 2, this is when Israel's in bondage in Egypt. This is before the Lord's risen up a deliverer in Moses. And it says, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. He wasn't just up in heaven doing his thing. It's perfect ethereal thing. He saw the pain of his people, and he took notice, and he was disturbed by it, right? We get so busy in our lives, and we're so afraid of pain as a culture that we kind of slip right on by, and we'll turn the channel, or we'll go the other way, or I don't, ooh, that, I, I'm not willing to be disturbed, Lord. My life's too important. And we've, we, we, when, we, when we walk past, you know, it's like kind of the good Samaritan. The priest walks by because he's got priestly duties to do. The Levite walks by because he, when I want to get him pure, that would mess up my whole, my whole religious jam. But the Samaritan actually gets disturbed and helps and sits with it and actually disturbs his day too. And we've got to start prioritizing relationship over everything else, because that's what God does. It's about his people. It's about love. I remember I was in Africa. I was going to do ministry for two days in a leper village, which I was kind of nervous about because I didn't know what that would be like. I imagined it would disturb me because I'm there. It's Africa. It's hot. I was disturbed enough before I even got there. And now I'm going to go and for two and a half days and nothing to do but probably sit in the shade of some trees with some lepers. And I did, and it was disturbing. They didn't have limbs, some of them, not all the way up to here, or their feet were gone, or their, some were missing fingers. And it's a very simple fix with Western medicine, but because we were 12 hours into the middle of the African bush, they don't have modern medicine, and so they sit, and they were all outcasts, and they sit there together, and I tried to sit and talk with them. It's kind of difficult, kind of different for a kid that grew up in America, and I thought it was going to disturb me real bad, and I was like, you know, I might just have to stay here forever because it's going to disturb me. You hear the stories, right? Like I, my heart broke for Africa and I needed to be there. And my heart broke and I saw the pain and it was hard to relate with, but it, it, it was bad, you know. But about two days later, I'm in worship and the Lord just, my heart just became undone. And it wasn't for the lepers that I'd seen. It was for back here. It was for my people. And, and my story, as I went through these deep years of depression and isolation and pain, and I just began to see all these people I know that on the outside looked so competent and so good and so put together, but I knew that we're dying, and I knew that we're starving, and I knew that didn't want to live, and I knew that we're just, just crying out in the, in, the, in the depression and isolation of this Western culture where we don't, we, you know, we, we suffer, but we suffer alone. 
We sometimes we say, you know, the pain in Africa and India is so great, and it is. But they have community in their pain. They have fellowship because they're all hungry. Because they all have worms in their foot. But in America, we're all isolated in our little silos, suffering, and my heart just broke. And it still breaks. You know, and we're, we're growing as a church, and I'm telling people, you know, we gotta, what we have is beautiful, and, and family is beautiful, and intimacy is beautiful, and people need to be known, but how many people need to be known? How many people look on the outside like you have it all together, but they don't? They're dying, they're starving for connection, for community, for people. So why is there a mandate on us? Why are we trying to grow a church? It's to bring people that are living in that hell into a place where they can know love, but we have to be compelled by compassion. Amen? Like, this is what's, this is what's fueling us. But we got to stop. we got to see. And I guarantee you there's people in your life that look, that look, that look on the outside. They look so good. But if you will stop, and get his heart. Thank you. I knew someone would be getting me. Yeah. This is one of those snot nights. Praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, I did this like a like few months ago. It was the last time I pulled one of these snot sermons out. And I was like, Lord, that's so uncomfortable for me. Why are you having me do that? I was like, I don't like preaching like that. He said, you weren't preaching. He's like, that was a holy drama. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, that's weird. I don't like that. But anyways, maybe you do. I don't. Um, if we will stop and start having eyes for the one, you'll start seeing the pain. And when you see the pain, let it disturb you. But we'll never let ourselves be disturbed unless we have hope. Turn your Bibles to Colossians, and I'll read a verse. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 3, 3 and 4. It says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We don't have hope, we will never let ourselves be disturbed. Even Jesus didn't go to the cross void of hope. He went to the cross and suffered and wept and bled, full of hope in a God who raises the dead to life. Right? Our hope is one thing, and it's resurrection. Our hope is that Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. Our hope is that what he told Mary, Mary Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. That is our hope, nothing else. Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're done. And hope says that even in this disturbing, I'm gonna let myself be disturbed because compassion isn't just feeling someone's pain, it's not just suffering with someone, it's an uncontrollable burning desire to alleviate that suffering. And this is the crux of the gospel, right? Who wants to see resurrection power in your life, right? Who wants to see the inbreaking of his kingdom from heaven to earth? Who wants to be used by God to do miracles? 
Who wants to be used by God to turn the world upside down? Who? who? Right? Am I around the right kind of people tonight? I think I am. That's why you're here. We, we are prisoners of hope in this life. We've been told through the Lord's Prayer, this is how you pray. Pray that my kingdom comes and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a crazy statement. And we've been trying to figure out what does that mean? What does that mean? How much of the kingdom can come? We don't really know. And Jesus doesn't really disclose it because he's trying to just get our hearts captive to hope. He's trying to get you so, so trapped in hope that you can't do anything but just believe in hope with all your life that God somehow, his kingdom is going to come through me. Okay? Hope is the confident expectation that his goodness is going to manifest in my life. We don't know what it's going to look like. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is just this overarching expectation, and then faith is like, it's that. Right? It's like zeroing in on one thing. But hope is like, it's just coming. I don't know what, I don't know how. I just, I just believe that his kingdom's going to come. Right? And God, he's like giving us everything we need to just be possessed with hope as a people. That his kingdom's going to come. But where does his kingdom come? Where does resurrection power flow in this life? Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. My power is made perfect in weakness. If a seed is sown and it dies, it'll bear much fruit. Life from death, beauty from ashes, joy from mourning, praise from depression. It's in the pain of life that his power flows. That's what compels us. That's, there's something that happens in the disturbance, in, the, in, the, in this place of identifying with pain. That you, you change. You start praying things. You just, it changes you. And you have this ability from that point to begin to hope. It's not, right, you're like tied between, I'm feeling this, I'm disturbed, but I'm hoping in God who raises the dead to life. And there's this force that takes place in those that embody the compassion of Jesus. Jesus would heal a lot in his ministry. And if you read the Gospels, most of the time it says something like this. And Jesus, moved with compassion, would heal. Now, Gospel writers are writing firsthand accounts of what took place, right? They're not like in Jesus's head, like, oh, he was feeling compassion, then he healed, right? They saw compassion. Whatever his face looked like, whatever his eyes were burning with, they were like, oh, there's compassion, and he stretched out his hand to heal, right? There was a compelling, there was a forcefulness, there was this emotional energy, and we say, oh, I don't want to have emotionalism. No, we don't, but true emotion that flows from the Spirit, that flows from love and connection with God, is a force to be reckoned with, and Jesus is the most passionate person we'll ever deal with. His eyes are flames of fire, and when he would extend to heal, they'd say, oh, he's moved with compassion. There's something in his eyes that he's, he's on a mission right now, Right, because he sees the ones he loved and he's in pain and he would go all day. He, one time John the Baptist just died and Jesus is grieving and then all the people find him and it says he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion and he ministered to them. He was compelled by this, right, because he had great hope. 
He had great hope. He knew who his daddy was, and he knew his daddy's in the business of raising the dead to life. And so when you know that, you have to get disturbed because you see that as an invitation. Let me sit with you. Let me weep with you. Let me feel your pain. Let me weep with those who weep. Let me catch your tears in a bottle. Let me value your pain. And I'm going to sit there, but I'm going to hope with you for the God of the impossible that can do all things. Right? And that act of love is movement. There's a movement that takes place. We, we, we celebrate praying for healing, right? I just heard someone shared a miracle today. It happened a few weeks ago. I love healing miracles. But this is kind of the gauntlet that I want to put out. Because, you know, power follows love. Amen? The gifts should flow through love. Prophecy should flow through love. Healing should flow through love. Everything we do should flow through love. Right? And power follows love. Love is, suffering love is the only force on planet earth that contains within it the power to heal the world. It is the cross. It is suffering love on the cross. It's the only thing that contains the power to heal the world. And love, power follows it right? It's death and then resurrection. People say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm praying for someone to be healed? Like, what's the motivation? Am I praying from love? This would be the question that I would lay before you. When you pray for someone to get healed, are you willing to go with them the full distance in the journey of hope until they get the breakthrough? What do I mean by that? You pray for them. We all love the miracles, right? When it happens, boom, Blind eyes, open. I love that. We celebrate that. I want to celebrate that. That's resurrection power. That's what we were all born to see, right? But if they don't get the breakthrough, are you willing to journey with them through the story of disappointment and in the, in, the, in, the, in the meantime, in this journey that takes persevering hope sometimes that's not fun, it's disturbing. You have to ask the questions why. You have to sit with them in your pain. Are you willing to go with them the full distance until they get that breakthrough and hope and hope and hope and hope? Are you willing? Because that's love. That's compassion. I'm with you and I'm for you and I'm not going to give up because I believe I'm a prisoner to hope and my God opens blind eyes and my God heals the sick and my God heals cancer and I don't know why it doesn't happen but I'm going to go the full distance and I'm going to feel the pain of the world around me and I'm still going to hope. If you're willing to do that and you might not always have to, there's a lot of times you pray for someone you might never see them again but are you willing? Are you willing to go the full distance? And if you are, that's, that's compassion. <laughs> that's when you start getting to know that your heart is being compelled by love. I'll go. I'll go the distance. I'll make my, you can disturb every part of me. I just have to see your kingdom come. I can tell you my answer to that question, because I pose it to myself first, is absolutely yes. I am so in, like, I'm a bond slave to the hope of God. I've seen too much not to be. I was, I was reflecting on this earlier. and When I was in India, there was this day, there's a lot of things I saw, but there was this little girl that was probably six years old that got her ears open. And her parents were freaking out. And I was kind of just numb in the moment, just like, this is overwhelming. 
But I was reflecting on that one day, and it was just like, God, that, that girl's whole life is different now. She's deaf, and now she can hear. What's that, what, what's that gonna do? What, what kind of change is that gonna bring for this little girl? And I was reflecting, I was like, Lord, I was just like, everything I've ever been through was worth seeing that one, that one two-minute encounter. Like, I said, Lord, I'll do it all again. All the pain, all the depression I went through, all, all the struggles, all the sacrifice you asked for, all the hours that you asked for this, and I said yes, and it cost me this and that and that and all the weeping and all the tears and all the broken nights. It was all worth it to see that girl find the healer and I mean it like it was worth it and what would it look like if his church if if his people we all just lived God anything 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 and anywhere I'll hurt I'll feel I'll sit in the pain. I'll let myself be so disturbed that it costs me my comfort if I can see your kingdom come. <laughs> That's the DNA that turns the world upside down. That's the cross. That's the, that's the love that breaks down division and makes his church one and brings his family back and heals the world. Spirit, soul, body heals the world amen i'm gonna end now because i feel really vulnerable <laughs> wow that was probably never mind Whew. i'm gonna end and i want to go into ministry time band you can come up i want to end simply i just want to put the gauntlet before you that i dare you I dare you to hope enough in God that you'll let you, you'll create space to be disturbed at a deep place. So disturbed that you'll change your plans because you have to see his kingdom come. That's what I'm just going to lay before you. And I actually, I want to I give you an opportunity to really respond to that. I don't do this very frequently, but um, I just want to, we got like a imaginary altar up here. It's just a space. You can turn the lights down a little bit, Brad. Um, and I just want to create a space that if you're saying like yes to God, I want your compassion to touch me. Um, I don't want you to do it unless you really mean it because I believe God. This is one of those scary prayers. Amen. Prayed a few in my life. And this is one of those ones that I'm like, yeah, I got perfect faith. You're going to answer it. So if you just want the compassion of God, if you want it to touch you, if you're willing to say, God, I want you to make me a prisoner of hope, um, you guys can start playing, and I just want to create this space that you can, you can come forward, um, and I'm going to just pray. So you can come, and I'll pray, and then we'll sing or whatever God's going to have us do, but it's open. Lord, I pray for a revelation of your cross and of your deep mercy, God, and of your, your compassion, Jesus. We want to be touched by your compassion, God. We want you to break our hearts for what break yours.
cry your people tonight, God. Hear the cry of your people, God. Fill us with so much hope that it compels us. God, for those in the room tonight that say I've been living in a silo, a silo of depression and isolation, and I've been suffering all alone. I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that the Comforter will come and that you'll touch those hearts. I pray tonight, God, that you come and you get into that place and that you, 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 you show them that the door is open. The door of that cage is unlocked because you broke it. And they can come out, God, and I pray that you meet them right in that place and I pray freedom tonight I pray freedom from depression specifically I take authority over depression and I pray breakthrough in the name of Jesus God you did it for me eight years ago Lord and I pray that same thing tonight that you come that same testimony God that you come that you break the chains of depression tonight that you that you remove just the that 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 wet blanket God that wants to come and sadden the soul God and I pray joy for mourning tonight in this place, God. Holy Spirit, we just give you permission to move upon your people. Thank you that you're here, that you're stirring, God. Do all that's in your heart this time.
this wasn't really the plan, so I don't know what to do exactly, but I want to just continue this space. I think there's times where you're supposed to just really engage with the Lord in prayer, and I feel like for some of you down there, just engage with the Lord in prayer. Um, I also, and even if you're on the ministry team, feel free to do the same. Um, and then some of you, I think we're going to have ministry team, maybe like uh, in the sides, that back side, we're going to have the ministry team if you're feeling I'm going to go over there, and uh, you can receive prayer. Um, specifically, um, if you're just struggling, you're feeling alone and, and battling depression, I want to pray over you. So um, they'll be over there, and I'm going to stay up here and pray, and I'll pray for anybody. And I just kind of, I don't want to miss what God's doing. So I really just encourage you, listen to him and do what he tells you. Um, if you are ready and you're like, hey, I've received and I'm ready to go, you can go and we bless you and uh, just maybe exit quietly and you can mix and mingle out in the lobby um, but the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace we love you we bless you and we're so glad you're here to worship with us and we'll see you all next week